Well, good morning. Is this on? There we go. Let me ask you, do you ever go around and look at tombstones, gravestones, walk through a cemetery, look at the interesting things they put down for people, how they want to be remembered or are remembered by their family? I do. I looked up some funny uh, tombstone sayings this week. There was a lady who died at age 83, and her tombstone said, The doctor said I would not live past my teen years, LOL. (laughs) Esther Freer, who died at age 66, her tombstone reads, I'd rather be reading this. There's an unknown man who died in 1908, and his tombstone said, Died eating library paste. It's kind of different. B.P. Roberts died in 17 or 1979, and his tombstone simply said, I told you I was sick. <laughs> There's some serious ones, obviously. There's a dad who died in 2010. His tombstone reads, Thank you for dedicating your life to us. You are always in our thoughts. A lady who died in 2017, hers reads, Loving mother and wife, Amazing grace, my chains are gone, I've been set free. There are obviously many who speak highly of the person who who passed away. There's some sayings that speak poorly of the person, honestly. But these are human assessments. The question is, uh, what would God say about those persons if he was writing their epitaph there on the tombstone? Well, today we're going to be looking at King Asa, Uh, A-S-A. Now, that's pronounced a couple of ways. I've usually pronounced it Asa, but the correct pronunciation, I think, is Asa. I'll probably say it both ways. We'll We'll come across a summary statement that God gives of him and his reign as a king in Judah. We're going to spend most of our time in 2 Chronicles because 2 Chronicles provides a more detailed account of his reign. There's two basic principles that, that's enumerated in Chronicles and really throughout Old Testament history. Obedience brings blessing and disobedience brings judgment. We see that played out over and over as we walk through and will continue to be walking through the kings uh, during the divided kingdom. We will continue to see in our study three basic failings or failures of kings of, of Judah that bring about God's wrath, personal sin, false worship and idolatry, and trusting in things other than God, trusting in man in particular rather than God. But today, fresh breath, uh, it, there's a good good king. So it, it's a good lesson in that sense. It's refreshing. Today we're going to look at Asa's reign that, that begins well. It begins very well. And he's an, uh, really begins his reign in an exemplary way exercising faith and obedience in the Lord. So I invite you to turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 14, and 
We're going to be begin looking at this first period of reform under King Asa. And it begins with his crowning as king, verse 1. So Abijah slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David. And his son Asa became king in his place. The land was undisturbed for ten years during his days. So we see that he became king after the death of his father Abijah. Now, as we've seen before, here, here's the timeline. This is now in the southern kingdom of Judah. Rehoboam was the initial king, then Abijah, also referenced as Abijam uh, in kings, and then Asa followed him. And it says here that the land was undisturbed for 10 years. Well, there's a problem. If you read the account in King, 1 Kings 15, that, where Basha was king in the northern kingdom, uh, overlapping with Asa and uh, for about eight of these initial ten years. First Kings fifteen sixteen says, Now there was war between Asa and Basha, king of Israel, all their days. Well, how could there be peace? How could the land be undisturbed these initial ten years for Asa, which overlaps Basha for eight, eight of those years, and yet it says here that there were, was war between them. Well, we know that all of Scripture is true, and we have to think about how to resolve such that both statements uh, can be understood properly. It would seem that there was something like a cold war that happened during this period between Basha and, and Asa during this, these eight years. The land was undisturbed in the sense that there was not actual fighting and conquering of land. But there was this tension. There was concern, threat, and we understand that. We've been in a Cold War ourselves where you're not actually fighting, but you're preparing. The land could be undisturbed, but still there's tension and you're preparing for what could happen down the future. So that would be the best way to understand these uh, two statements. And then we see from 1 Kings 15.10 that he reigned in Jerusalem for 41 years. This would be from 1910 to 870 B.C. And then next we see his exemplary conduct in, in this assessment of King Asa. He did good and right. In the sight of the Lord, verse 2. Asa did good and right in the sight of the Lord his God. That's the summary statement about his reign as king. He started out very well, and as we'll see, removing idols, devoting himself, and the people to serve the Lord properly. His heart was like David's, holy devoted to the Lord. This comes from 1 Kings 15, 11. Asa did what was right in the sight of the Lord like David, his father. And verse 14 says, the heart of Asa was wholly devoted to the Lord all his days. Again, these are overarching summary statements that 
that God could have put on his tombstone if God was writing it. That's the record in scripture about his reign. And that is indeed exemplary. He had a heart that really wanted to honor and worship the Lord. Now next week, we will learn about some of King Asa's failures. And he had some. But despite that, he was still the most godly monarch thus far in Judah since the kingdom divided. More so than his, his father or grandfather. Well, specifically, what did he do? Let's look at the acts, his acts of obedience and devotion. And we see verses 3 and 5 that he removed those things associated with false worship and pagan idolatry. Verse 3, For he removed the foreign altars and high places, tore down the sacred pillars, cut down the ashram. Verse 5, He also removed the high places and the incense altars from all the cities of Judah. Now these high places, as we've seen, that, that refers to these places associated with pagan worship. Ashram, we've seen that reference before. These would be wooden poles, uh, symbolic of life and fertility, representing the fertility goddess Asherah. And 1 Kings 15, 12, again, this parallel account, it also adds that he, King Asa, put away the male cult prostitutes from the land. So you can imagine all that's going on associated with these pagan places of of worship and idolatry worshiping fertility goddesses and idols and those kind of things there were male cult prostitutes that were part of that and king asa put those away he got rid of them now there's another problem if you look again at the parallel account in first kings 15 first kings 15 14 says but the high places were not taken away Okay, another difficult culty. It seems contradictory. Don't be shaken when you see things like that in Scripture. There's always a way to resolve them. It would seem that a different time span is in view in each of those cases. Perhaps the king did remove all of them at some point, but they later appeared. So there's a time uh, horizon that's in the context of a given statement. Perhaps it's in reference to newly conquered cities. I mean, he could have wiped out all the idols. They then conquer additional cities and areas. Guess what? They have some additional idols that maybe they didn't ultimately get, get rid of. Um, perhaps some of the people, you know, brought them back after they had been gotten rid of. So, again, it's a... It's a perspective of just a time time window. Ironically, the same very same thing is mentioned about his son, King Jehoshaphat, who followed him. There's a statement he got rid of them. There's another statement he didn't get rid of them all. So again, just a, a, a time perspective there. Next, we see that he commanded the people to devote themselves to the Lord, verse 4. And he commanded Judah to seek the Lord God of their fathers and to observe 
the law and the commandment. Asa at this point was being like David. You remember David said to his leaders back in First Chronicles 22, it's recorded David saying this. Now set your heart and your soul to seek the Lord your God. So King Asa is doing the same thing. He's, he's showing the heart of David in commanding the people to be devoted to God and to serve him with all of their heart. Well, there's the resulting period of rest and prosperity for King Asa and Judah that follows. Continuing in verse 5, we see that the cities were fortified and the land was undisturbed. And the kingdom was undisturbed under him. He built fortified cities in Judah since the land was undisturbed. And there was no one at war with him during those years because the Lord had given him rest. For he said to Judah, let us build up these cities and surround them with walls and towers Gates and bars, the land is still ours because we have sought the Lord our God. We have sought him and he has given us rest on every side. So they built and prospered. And then in verse 8, we see that the army grew significantly. Verse 8, now Asa had an army of 300,000 from Judah bearing large shields and spears and 280,000 from Benjamin, bearing shields and wielding bows. All of them were valiant warriors. You know, it's common in, in the book of uh, in Chronicles to describe new building projects, having a, this period of peace and also an expanding army as blessings of God in response to obedience. So there is that that pattern, that descriptive pattern of what God accomplishes in the people as a result of obedience. And Asa's army had grown from what we think was 400,000. That's what his father Abijah had. That was the size of his army, which we assume that's what he inherited. But it's now up to what? 580,000 men. There's also an emphasis here of how the soldiers were were warriors. They were trained and they were valiant. So this was a a great army that the Lord had had blessed them in, in building up. But there's a conflict coming and perhaps it is Asa's first. It's certainly the first one recorded. So the first significant one and it, it's an Ethiopian or a a Cushite conflict. I'll explain that in a minute. In 897 BC, now this would be 14 years into King Asa's reign, a major conflict arose. There's a million man Cushite army that came up to battle Judah. Look at verse 9. Now Zerah, the Ethiopian, came out against them with an army of a million men and 300 chariots. And he came to Marishah. Now we don't know anything about Zerah who's mentioned here except that he was the general of a large army and he was 
from Ethiopia. Literally, it says he was the Cushite. Some translations use the term Cushite. Now, here's a map. Ethiopia, or the area of the Cushites, would be down south. So this is, you know, Israel's up here. Egypt, way south of, Ij- of Egypt is Ethiopia, or where the Cushites would be. That's modern-day Sudan. The Cushites served often as Egyptian mercenaries. In other words, hired soldiers to go do things for Egypt. It's possible in this particular encounter they were acting on behalf of Egypt. But regardless, he brings up this million-man army. This is huge, very large. And he comes into Judah to confront King Asa. Verse 10. So Asa (coughs) went out to meet him and they drew up in battle formation in the valley of Zephathah at Marishah. So the Cushite army came to Marishah. You can see the city here in the land of Judah. This was a city fortified by Rehoboam. It's located eight miles southeast of Gath, about 25 miles southwest of Jerusalem. You can see there on the map. So Asa assembles his army and marches out to meet the enemy here. Now think about the situation. Asa's army is what? 580,000 up against Zerah's army, which is a million, maybe 1,300 if you count the chariots. I'm not sure if that's additional men or not. But it's not looking good. How would Asa respond in this situation? How do you respond when you face great difficulty, overwhelming odds in life? What is your response? Well, Asa called to the Lord for help. Verse 11. Then Asa called to the Lord his God and said, Lord, there is no one besides you to help in the battle between the powerful and those who have no strength. So help us, O Lord our God, for we trust in you and in your name have come against this multitude. O Lord, you are our God. Let not man prevail against you. It's a beautiful prayer, a beautiful petition that he, he offers up to God. Notice how Asa acknowledges the greatness and the power of God just right off the bat to put things in perspective, to focus on the greatness and power of God and not the difficulty. That's where he begins. That sets our minds and our hearts in proper perspective as we then proceed to ask God for things. He calls out to God, help us come to our defense. Commentators Patterson and Ostell write, the point seems to be that for God, the humanly impossible is as nothing. And Asa had the faith to commit himself to Yahweh and to expect the impossible. Asa cries out, we trust in you. He prays to God in your name 
have we come against this multitude? He acknowledges that God alone is the one who they worship, and he trusts the Lord and asks that he defend them and his own reputation against this enemy. You know, what would happen, or what would have happened if they were conquered? They have to be thinking about that. I mean, their, their land would be taken away, their, their families, their belongings. Um, they have to have thought about that. It's, it's Asa's greatest moment of need. But in that moment, he called out to God to deliver him. He didn't turn to man. He turned to Almighty God. And that's what godly leaders and people do. Well, what happens next? The Lord calls the Cushite army to be shattered before Asa and Judah. Look at verse 12. So the Lord routed the Ethiopians before Asa and before Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. Asa and the people who were with him pursued them as far as Gerar, and so many Ethiopians fell that they could not recover. For they were shattered before the Lord and before his army. Now the word routed, you know, when I think of the word routed, my, my GPS will route me from one place to another. I don't think of my GPS as beating me up. But there's a sense of the word routed that that's what that means. And the word actually means to injure by striking. If you have the ESV, it uses the word defeated, which is much clearer. The Lord defeated the Ethiopians. We don't have details about exactly how he did that, but um, it says God simply caused them to be shattered despite that they far outnumbered Asa's army. It was a miracle what God did. It said they pursued them as far as Gerar. That's uh, a city there on the coast. You can see it on the map here. About eight miles south of Gaza in the area of Philistia. Next we see that the Lord gave Asa and Judah much plunder. Continuing there in verse 13. And they carried away very much plunder. They destroyed all the cities around Gerar and the dread, the fear of the Lord had fallen on them. That's on the enemy and the people in that land. And they despoiled all the cities for there was much plunder in them. They also struck down those who owned livestock and they carried away large numbers of sheep and camels. Then they returned to Jerusalem. Regarding this million man army MacArthur writes it appears that his great horde this this large army of people that was was traveling was a nomadic people who who moved with all of their possessions and they had set up their camp near Gerar and the spoils of Judah's victory were immense the plunder that they would collect would also be used in a massive upcoming sacrifice that we'll we'll see in the next chapter and it says here that the dread, the fear of the Lord had fallen on them. This is mentioned often in Scripture as the enemies of God and Israel uh, are defeated. 
Well, that's chapter 14. Then we move to chapter 15. We'll look at verses 1 to 15. And this, this captures a second period of reform from King Asa. It's marked by a renewed covenant and a renewed devotion, both from the king and of the people to God. And it begins with a prophetic pronouncement by Azariah to Asa and the people, beginning with three opening proclamations. Verse 1 of chapter 15. Now the Spirit of God came, came on Azariah, the son of Oded, and he went, went out to meet Asa and said to him, Listen to me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you when you are with him. And if you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. There's various men, actually many uh, men in Scripture, called Azariah. Nothing's known about the one mentioned here except that he was a prophet used by God to deliver this particular message. It says, Azariah went out to meet Asa. This is quite possibly as the, the army is re- has just returned from this great victory. And he delivers a message both to, not only to the king, but of all of the people of Judah. And he says three initial things. He says, the Lord is with you when you are with him. If you seek him, he will let you find him. If you forsake him, he will forsake you. Those are, are really stunning, very concise statements that are, are powerful. They're encouraging words to the king and to the people. If you're with If the Lord is with you, or the Lord will be with you if you are with Him, if you pursue Him, if you seek Him, God will let you find Him. You won't come up empty-handed if you truly seek the Lord. If you forsake Him, He will forsake you. Now we know in, in the New Covenant, in Christ, it's different. When we are in Christ, God will never forsake us. We have that promise. I mean, that's the doctrine of the eternal security of the believer. The Holy Spirit keeps us bound to Christ. Uh, Nothing can snatch us away when we are genuinely, when we genuinely belong to Christ. MacArthur writes, the spiritual truth here is basic, namely that God is present and powerful in defense of his obedient people. We see this over and over in the Old Testament. And, and then the prophet gives an example from the period of the judges. This ver- that very chaotic period. You remember when the people came into the promised land, they initially conquered, established themselves in the land and split up uh, the area you know, by tribe and so on, but they had no king. Things got really chaotic. Look at verse 3. For many, remember, this is the prophet uh, Azariah speaking to Asa and the people. For many days, Israel was without the true God and without a teaching priest and without law. Without law in the sense that the law wasn't being taught to the people. 
But in their distress, they turned to the Lord God of Israel and they sought him and he let them find him. In those times, there there was no peace for him who went out or to him who came in for many disturbances afflicted all the inhabitants of the lands. Nation was crushed by nation and city by city, for God troubled them with every kind of distress. Remember this period of the judges was a time when everyone what? Did what was right in their own eyes. That is not good when people do what is right in their own eyes. They were without proper spiritual leaders. Judges 2.18 tells us that the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning and he, he raised up and he blessed judges to deliver them in that very chaotic time period. The key point is verse 4. But in their distress, they turned to the Lord God of Israel and they sought him and he let them find him. In verse 7, we, we see this call from Azariah to Asa and the people to be strong and not lose courage. Verse 7, But you be strong and do not lose courage for there is reward for your work. God encourages the king here to be to be resolute, to be strong and courageous. Because when you do the Lord's work and you honor him, there is great reward, there is great blessings. He's saying stay the course. Continue the work of removing idolatry from the land and fully serving the Lord. Well, what's the response of the people? It was a very courageous and bold response. We see here that Asa removed the detestable idols and restored the altar of the Lord. Verse 8. Now when Asa heard these words and the prophecy which Azariah the son of Oded the prophet spoke, he took courage and he removed the abominable abominable idols from all the land of Judah and Benjamin and from the cities which he had captured in the hill country of Ephraim. Now it mention, mentions here he places that he captured implying by this time period in his reign there has been conflict between Judah and Israel and you know they've been fighting and he's captured cities and so on. He then restored the altar of the Lord which was in front of the porch of the Lord. He's referring to Solomon's temple and he's talking about this this bronze altar. Remember when we studied uh, the temple this something had happened to it by this time period and King Asa restores that he restored the bronze altar for burnt offerings. Next they assembled and offered many sacrifices along with worshipers who defected from the north. Now let me just clarify. Maybe I didn't word that well. They didn't actually offer the people who defected from the north as sacrifices. Uh, like we'll show you. <laughs> no. These people came down from the north and joined with them in offering sacrifices to the Lord. Look at verse 9. He gathered all Judah and Benjamin and those from Ephraim 
Manasseh and Simeon who resided with them for many defected to him from Israel when they saw that the Lord his God was with him. It's very interesting. Not everyone who started out in the northern kingdom had abandoned God, the true worship of God. Their hearts were still with Yahweh. It says many defected from Israel, from the northern kingdom, came down into Judah, the southern kingdom, in order to worship God and to be with those who were, who were properly worship, worshiping God. And, I mean, they wanted to be with God's people. People from each of the northern ten tribes came and lived in Judah, such that Judah became a mixture of Jewish people reflecting or representing all of the, the twelve tribes of Israel. Don't, don't forget that. God is preserving a faithful remnant of those who trust in him. Remember, the, the northern kingdom eventually is going to go away. They're going to be taken over by the Assyrians, never to return. That, that's gone. So Judah becomes, you know, what we eventually, again, call Israel. And it does represent all of the 12 tribes, original 12 tribes of Israel. Look at verse 10. So they assembled at Jerusalem in the third month of the 15th year of Asa's reign. They sacrificed to the Lord that day 700 oxen and 7,000 sheep from the spoil they had brought. So this certainly would have included animals that they had taken in the spoil of that great victory of the Ethiopians and the, the surrounding area there of the Philistines. In verses 12 to 14, we see that they enthusiastically renewed their covenant with God. Verse 12, they entered into the covenant to seek the Lord God of their fathers with all their heart and soul. And whoever would not seek the Lord God of Israel should be put to death, whether small or great, man or woman. Moreover, they made an oath to the Lord with a loud voice, with shouting, with trumpets, and with horns. Now notice there in verse 12, it says, they entered in not to a covenant not to a new covenant with God but what the covenant the covenant that already existed it's they're renewing themselves to that going back to the covenant with David back all the way through to Moses the covenant that God established that he established with his chosen people God's people were in were to respond in faith and obedience, which they did here on pain of death. This goes back to the command that the Lord had given to Moses some 500 years earlier, back in Deuteronomy 13, to rid the theocracy of those who were not willing to worship God. That, w that was a commandment given, a standard set before they entered the promised land. And then in verse 15, we see that they rejoiced over what had been done and the Lord gave them rest. Verse 15, all Judah rejoiced concerning the oath, for they had sworn with their whole heart and had sought him earnestly, and he let them find him. 
So the Lord gave them rest on every side. Patterson and Austell write, The immediate rest that he granted to Judah was one of relief from her enemies. But it was indicative of a more fundamental rest that comes to men because they have been accepted by God. Covenant rest embraces all the joys of redeemed life in the present, of heavenly life beyond the grave, and of ultimate life in the kingdom of God on earth. That's well stated. The people were greatly blessed because they had devoted themselves to the Lord. They had responded properly. There was a great oneness of of faith and commitment during this time. Well, there's one other point that the account in 1 Kings 15 points out that I want to mention. Asa removed his evil queen mother and burned her horrid images. uh, Since we're in uh, 2 Chronicles, I'll put it up, the verse here on the screen. 1 Kings 15, 13. He also removed Maka, his mother, from being queen mother because she had made a horrid image as an Asherah. And Asa cut down her horrid image and burned it at the brook Kidron. Now, Maka was actually Rehoboam's second wife. Therefore, it was Asa's grandmother. It's common. In Scripture, we see references to, you know, his father, David. It doesn't mean David was his immediate father. He was a descendant. The same references here. Maka, his mother, he was a descendant. She was his grandmother. And she was, she was an evil woman. She was an idolater. And she had significant evil influence uh, in the royal court. Now think about it. This, <laughs> this is Asa's grandmother. Member of the family. But Asa placed roy- loyalty and obedience to God above loyalty to family. He removed her. He said, away with you. This, this could have meant having her put to death. Because remember what it, we just read they put to death those who were not willing to worship God. Really uh, an amazing commitment demonstrated on the part of, of Asa to wipe away idolatry. Even, it said the great and the small, even those who were closely connected, even those with family ties to the king himself. Well, that's our text. Let's look at some reflections that I had considered. First of all, how do you respond in the difficult and overwhelming circumstances of life? You know, Asa faced that as we looked at. He, he had insurmountable odds and he could have been facing death. How do you respond when the circumstances of life Shout out to you, defeat, failure, possible death. How how does that grip you? What, What is your response to that? How we're exhorted to respond is like Asa did here, with confident faith and trust in God. We turn to our maker. We turn to our redeemer, the one who 
who knows us, who is all-powerful, all-sovereign, and who is good, and who knows us. We turn to him and we, we lay down before him and cry out to him. That is how we are t- to respond. And regardless of how things work out, doesn't mean the difficulty will be removed, but whatever happens, God can give us rest and peace. And he can be glorified in using us to honor him. Secondly, are you thankful for God's mercy? This jumped out at me in in several areas, really, in looking at, at the text. Number one, we can have failures, but ultimately not be defined by them. And I'm kind of moving ahead a little bit into next week's lesson because I, you know, I studied that as well. But I it's just kind of front of mind because our text gives the summary statement of Asa. He did good and right in the sight of the Lord. He had he had a heart that sought to honor the Lord. But he also had failures. At the end of his life, he did not do good. And we'll see that next week. Let me ask you this. Do you have failures? Have you had failures and mistakes in your past? Folks, we can have failures, but we don't have to ultimately be defined by those failures. With forgiveness in Christ, we can move forward. We can be forgiven of those things. And we can set our life on a a path that honors the Lord, that is obedient to Him, and it is that path that ultimately defines the, the, the summary statement of our life and our service to the Lord. So, all of us, we have failures. We have things that we look back in our lives and we cringe. But you don't have to be defined by that. Move on. Lay those things before the Lord And serve the Lord with your whole heart, with full devotion, and let the let the current your current state and your future state that let that define who you really are. Aren't you grateful for God's mercy? Secondly, God still calls